Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Few things get talked about more in pop culture, social media, and the media in general than social justice or wokeism. And we have a great guest here to talk to us about that today. He's the executive director at Social Evolution. He's the editor at underthrow.org. He's the former editor at the Foundation for Economic Education. And he's the author of numerous books, including Underthrow, How Jefferson's Dangerous Idea Will Spark a Revolution. And he has one of the best names you're ever going to come across, Max Borders. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be back. So a, a couple months ago, I read an article that you wrote about uh, psychological disorders, cognitive distortions, wokeism. And I had you on. We were originally going to talk about that. But then the attack in Israel happened. So we decided mm -hmm. to call an audible and talk about that. But now we're back and we're going to get to the original subject. So I, before we can really get into it, we need to know what exactly is it that we're talking about. When you hear woke or wokeism, what do you mean, or what do you what comes to your mind? Well, I, I honestly, um, when I hear that word, um, it makes me, it makes my bile ducts secrete. Like it's just so played, like the <laughs> because it's all it's sneered by people who don't like the the wokies you know and so they overuse it and i and you know when it was first when it was first coined and people wore it as a badge of honor that that was there for a time and then the response to it was oh you're so woke and then they kept using it kept using it so it's sort of like you know after you've had your you know 12th slice of pizza you don't want to see pizza again you know uh for about for about a, six months but that, but otherwise, let's call it social justice fundamentalism or radical social justice. Because Mac, can I tell you something real quick? Yeah, fine. It's, yeah. it's, this is gonna. It's woefully ironic, because as I read your article on it, you made the same thing. You said, "Look, this makes me sick. I'm so sick of hearing about woke, and I'm so sick of hearing about woke. And yet, I've got you on my show to talk about woke." Hey, that's it's not the it's not the subject matter that that I that I resist talking about. It's just the use of the word. That's it. It, it becomes laziness, right? It becomes yeah. a way, yeah. like you said, like instead of actually disputing somebody or defeating them in an argument, you just say, "Oh, you're woke." It's almost like mm -hmm. uh, you know, some people will say that's racist or that's anti-Semitic, and that's supposed to just shut down all argument. That's, I think, what what I dislike about it but i do love the subject matter so let me stop interrupting you and let, oh, let you explain no no it's super <laughs> important it's super important i mean we are in the middle of a culture war and i think we have reached a tipping point um over the the last year or two really and a, a couple of key events we can go back to talking about why i think that is but let's first do a little bit of a let me put it this way i think I think there's a really interesting way of taxonomizing what what you want to call woke or radical social justice. Okay, and by the way, I think that there can be healthy aspects, healthy dimensions to not fundamentalist social justice, but certain features of progressivism or so, or social justice that that we might be able to get behind, at least in their motivations. But what we're going to talk about are the pathological or unhealthy aspects of this. Okay, so we can look at um, social justice fundamentalism as a as a 
psychosocial phenomenon, right? Or a psychological phenomenon. We can look at it as a cultural phenomenon. We can look at it as an ideological phenomenon. And of course, all of those Venn diagram circles are going to overlap in interesting ways. And it is in those overlaps that we get why it's so damn powerful. And if you don't think that that social justice fundamentalism is powerful, you are kidding yourself. Because I remember going through the first phase of it in the early 90s, when it was still in the academy, when they were still trying to inculcate students. And I was in a class where they were they were just pushing this stuff home. I read Franz Fanon. I read uh, Herbert Marcuse. I read, you know, I, I was I was asked to read all of the stuff that um, basically gets turned into simplified memes, but it's just really the core arguments of all of this stuff, right? And I can go back and explain that in a moment. But what you found interesting and what I want to start off by talking about is the psychological dimension. Why why are people um why are people sort of stuck in the in the swamp of radical social justice? Not from an ideological pr perspective per se, but from a psychological perspective. And it occurred to me um sort of in parallel with this book um called called uh, by Jonathan Haidt and um what's the other guy's name oh is that is that do you have a is that your little girl a little boy? <laughs> he's actually a little boy he just has long hair like a hippie uh he's adorable he, he makes these appearances ever so often i could edit them out but i figure why bother he he's no, adorable. That's cool vinnie can you please go in the other room and play bud <laughs> i'm busy with rational egoists <laughs> <laughs> nice love it i got three kids of my own and do you they, they, yeah oh yeah yeah they don't um, care what time you're on everything is their time right <laughs> yeah exactly um reminds me of that guy who was on like the bbc or something and his kid his kid comes busting into the scenes <laughs> going, daddy 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 and then the mother had to crawl in on hands and knees and pull him out <laughs> and he was on live tv anyway um sort of back to the show um so there, it, if you buy into, and I think to some degree we can, uh, you know, um, there is a, a massive corruption going on in, in the field of psychology. But I think that there are definitely still, there's definitely still a lot to the basic taxonomy of diagnostics in something like the DSM-5 or whatever, the recent diagnostic criteria for psychology. And there are two basic kinds of disorders. One are personality disorders, and another is mood disorders. Well, in any case, I was reading um, this book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, it, it occurred to me that um, one of the authors was talking about his experience with cognitive behavioral therapy. And I remembered, I was like, yes, and cognitive behavioral therapy is an approach uh, that involves um, the recognition of cognitive distortions, okay? And you use certain methods to, to get out of it. You know, you can use a therapist, but you also have mantras and ways of centering yourself to talk about how these cognitive distortions should not govern your life, okay? So... I started looking at the list of cognitive distortions 
uh, on another day and thinking, my God, this is just exactly woke people, right? There's, um, or I, I did it again, didn't I? Um, but there's, they seem to be steeped in these kinds of cognitive distortions. They seem to live by them almost if by a set of principles. It's like a confusion between a psychological disp disposition uh, or uh, a, a, the set of cognitive distortions and, and what passes for an ideology. So there's, there, there's kind of a confusion there. And that's where the unhealthy aspect of it comes to me. Now, there's an there's a fellow named Michael Schellenberger who's a very good, you know, comes from the left, but he's really into free speech. He's responsible for the Twitter files, this this and that. And he did an investigation uh, recently in parallel to this. So I'm thinking about this in terms of cognitive distortions, which are depression and anxiety, right? Mood disorders. He's thinking out about it in terms of personality types. And what he discovered in his investigations is the striking parallel between what are known as the cluster B uh, personality types or the dark triad personality types and radical social justice or the unhealthy side of that, right? And so what you get is a very interesting, whether you talk, or you're talking about mood disorders like depression and anxiety and so on, and the kind of cognitive distortions that rise out of these problems. Or you look at it from the perspective of someone's personality. Both of these are interesting lenses through which to see the kind of bromides or shibboleths of radical social justice. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, Schellenberger points out the fact that uh, Machiavellianism is one of the, the ways that, that uh, it manifests. There's, a, there's sociopathy, Machiavellianism, and uh, narcissism, I think, are three of them. The cluster B's? And the cluster B. And cluster B, yeah. Okay. I want you just to back up just for a minute because I'm now I'm going to tell you why this interests me so much. Okay. In a book I co-authored called Down the Rabbit Hole, How the Culture of Corrections Encourages Crime, we had a chapter on the criminal personality. My co-author and I studied the criminal personality extensively. Uh, it interested us having been criminals ourselves. In their monumental work, the criminal personality, Dr. Stanton Samenow and Samuel Yokelston put out 52 criminal thinking errors. They're very analogous or, or reminiscent of the cognitive distortions, except for applied to criminals. They're cognitive distortions that criminals make. Now, when I took abnormal psych and personality psychology, we came across the cluster B disorders. I believe they're histrionic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. Mm -hmm. They're differentiated from cluster A, which is like obsessive compulsive personality disorder, th things of that nature. Yeah. My, I think my, my late father was borderline. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's rough. So what Brent and I did, and Brent McCall is the co-author and I, is we said that these, what, what these are, cluster B disorders, are basically psychological nomenclature for a criminal. They, 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 it's what, if a criminal were to go to a psychiatrist and get a diagnosis, it'd be a cluster B diagnosis. 
And then we read a great book. It was called The Cognitive Therapy of Personality Disorders. And it was edited in articles by Aaron Beck, a pioneer in cognitive therapy. So they actually applied cognitive therapy to personality disorders. So then when I read your article, you're doing the same, uh, applying this, basically the cognitive distortions to the cluster B disorders and then applying them all to woke. So I was very interested in one of the, for instance, Dr. Stamenow and Yokelson in their book, one of the things that they say criminals do, and I know having been a criminal and been around them all my life is always play the victim. They call it victim stance. (laughs) And and you identified that in your article. And I just, it, it really, you know, the interconnectedness of all this stuff really interests, interests me. I love to see things that are integrated or interconnected that most people won't see because they're maybe they're just not aware, but you did it in, in the article. So that's why I had you on. So now that I put that out there, so you were discussing the different types of cluster B disorders. So I just wanted to clarify that there's actually four of them, unless they've changed it. There's, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, dark tetrad dark triad there's different terms for it and there it depends on which ones you include okay and keep in mind i'm not a psychologist so i mean i can go get my dsm do you play one on tv but but i don't even do that i just just (laughs) on youtube but um i just wanted to sort of channel what what schellenberger was saying which is to say there are these personality type personality types that are pathological in terms of their behaviors right and they usually need some sort of treatment or something like that. So there's, if, if we can compartmentalize personality types, like someone who is, um, who is a narcissist, um, it can be very charming or whatever, but they tend not to be very empathic. They tend to be in it for themselves. Uh, someone who's, uh, has, a, you know, extreme Machiavellian traits tend to, um, you know, um, have, um, you know, sort of the really twisted office politics kind of person that you may have had to work with before. Um, and they, and it's like you say that they can never, and sometimes my dad, for example, uh, love you, dad. Um, <laughs> but he could never see his own blind spots. Right. And he always thought of himself as a victim. So it's really cool that, that you, you're bringing this up. I've also noticed that there is a threat, a, th- a through line in in all of this. Let's let's call it the the let's call it the criminal type, okay? For for just a moment, and this is not to offend you. Obviously, you've come a long it's way. It's not going to offend me. I w- I was a criminal. The truth yeah. doesn't offend me. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, you went through a journey of of, of self reflection, and you now can see why. These certain kind of things, these certain kind of uh, structures can give rise to criminality. And that's that's really interesting. So you you've lived this stuff. So it's not just observation, it's it's experience. And that's that's really important. But imagine now we have think about some of the events of the last five years. For example, there was an article in NPR where someone wrote glowingly about the 2020 riots trying to justify the violence, right? That it was a means of expression, that it was a means of taking in a system of capitalism that, you know, that doesn't allow them to have certain kind of resources and everything. And it was a complete justification based on this 
broader victimhood complex. So criminality became victimhood. Look also at the way the uh, the terrorists' acts on October 7th have been treated by the radical social justice wing, not as acts of criminality or terrorism, but as of acts of victimhood, of decolonization, of what you have to do and must do, a la Franz Fanon, to, to throw off your oppressors, right? And so what I was exploring in this particular article was not the personality traits, although those are very interesting and I think perhaps deeper in some ways, but just the way people look at the world when they're depressed or anxious. I have family members now who suffer from depression and anxiety and have in my own life. Um, and I, I found that the cognitive distortions seemed almost exactly like you were describing um, someone who's, who's this way. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, I'll take just a handful of them just at random. The first one, polarized thinking, viewing things in black and white terms with no middle ground. Such extreme thinking leads to feelings of perfection or complete failure. Here's an example. America is a white supremacist patriarchy. Republicans are Nazis. Okay, that's polarized thinking. Oppressor oppressed. Everything is viewed through these this polarized thinking. And you can't think in shades, grades, subtleties, nuances, any of it. Everything is in these massive sort of Manichaean black and white terms. We are, we are part of the light and everything we do is okay, even if it's criminal, even if it's tearing down civilization. And everything they do, even though it's peaceful and even though it's civilized, is evil and part of some power structure that is only keeping us the intersectional down. Um, I'll give you just a couple more quick examples and then I, then I won't hog the mic. Um, it's great. Blaming, assigning blame externally and evading personal responsibility. That hurricane, a natural event, was a direct result of your meat and fossil fuel consumption, right? Every time there's a hurricane, it's global warming. You did this. Stop oil now, right? There's no, you know, like, there's no integration with context. There's no will to understand there's also some there's always some talking point about what the science says as if the science is some god and they know that this particular hurricane uh is is and you are to be blamed for it and it's its destruction and and in fact you should go to hell for that it takes on almost like a religious proportions and another is catastrophizing um uh, if i'm not mistaken so um exaggerating an issue to make make this issue seem bigger than it is you'll hear someone say uh no lgbtq person can ever feel safe right when riley Gaines says that she just wants women to play women's sports she's a involved in lgbtq genocide yeah that, that that's the kind of uh the, the catastrophe or or the catastrophe of global warming. We got 12 years and then it's lights out for humanity. So when you see these patterns of thinking that always taken to the extreme, um, now it's not to say that this isn't possible in other vectors or other ideological vectors, but in, in this particular vector, and I'll give you a, uh, um, well, let me pause there because I told you I wasn't gonna hog the mic and I, then I'll, I'll turn to, 
to 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 a simple uh, tripartite system that uh, Arnold Kling has identified. It's funny that you mentioned that because I had never heard of that before, the Arnold Kling thing, until you told me about it. And as yeah. you were just speaking, it came to my mind. Here's an, an, another interesting thing that you, I think you're going to like. So <clears throat> after decades of studying as what rehabilitates criminals, what actually does so as opposed to what people claim does or what makes them feel good is cognitive behavioral therapy applied to what they call criminogenic needs. Criminogenic needs is just a fancy talk for what causes somebody to be a criminal. So one of them is like antisocial personality traits, uh, antisocial friends, that, that sort of thing. And what they do is they use the cognitive therapy to get people to stop making basically these cognitive thinking errors or engaging in cognitive distortions. One of the biggest criticisms that we had of the correctional system, well, not one of the biggest of the whole system, but of the programming is there's a, a program in prisons called the Alternative to Violence Project. One of the things they teach inmates are uh, America is a, a racist country that it, uh, exploits, uh, uh, exports violence and capitalism overseas and inflicts them on people here. What that does, the reason that's so horrible to do with inmates is because you feed that victim stance that you were talking mm -hmm. about. You basically tell them your behavior is understandable and it's justified, which you is why- You have no other choice. Exactly. Capitalism it, did this to you. Yes. And the, the yeah. literature, the psychological literature, criminological says, don't ever do that with criminals. But they do that nonetheless- and I would extrapolate from that to society at large. Years ago, I read a book um, by Larry Elder called The 10 Things You Can't Say in America. Whatever people think about Larry Elder now, I haven't followed him in years, but it was a good book. And one of the things he said is, when you tell a little black kid, America's racist, everywhere you go, people are going to hold you back. Your, your ed the education that you're going to get sucks. The message you're sending is, why bother trying? Right. You're, you're telling this kid, it doesn't make a difference. Your effort, your intelligence, your talent, nothing matters because you have this, this system against you. It's a like a built-in excuse. And now one more thing before I turn it back over to you. They're, I, I heard putting people on a mental plantation so they have their allegiances. Yes. So Sam Harris called wokeism and Trumpism the, uh, what do you call them? The dual nightmares, the twin nightmares of, of Trumpism and wokeism. And from that time, I started looking at him as very similar. And the other day, I made a comment on Twitter that so a lot of people nowadays get rich or stay rich telling people what they want to hear. They go on social media, they have podcasts, they have talk shows, and they'll just tell people whatever bullshit they think people want to hear. And people lap that nonsense up. So the guy says, yes, I've noticed that in a lot of you know right-wing personalities. And I said, actually, what I, when I first realized it was with the, uh, Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh when they wouldn't call out Trump for his, you know, his shenanigans. And the guy says, no, libertarians do it too. They, they cater to what people want to hear. And now, you know, I started to get a little annoyed because it was all directed in one direction. And I pointed out, well, what about the, the left who tell people that they're victims? who make a living off telling people that they're victims. It, you know, yeah. it's it's a virtual industry off of doing that. So it's not like we're discussing it right now just in the context of woke, which is how I directed it at that guy. But it's a much broader thing that, that has to do, I think, with, with people engage in the stuff that you're talking about. For instance, 
everybody on the left is horrible. They're all evil. Joe Biden's a, a horrible human being. Anybody that voted for him is a human being. Donald Trump is the savior. He's the only guy that always tells the truth. It's that that he's going to be able to save us from China, <laughs> from everybody, immigrants, right, and all of the people who are taking our jobs and who are destroying our culture. Yes, you know, and while there are elements of truth to that, you know, we need to be suspicious of the of the Chinese Communist Party and its machinations, and of course, we need to be better about managing the border and who we let in and out of the country. But you can't give people these. I don't know if you call it a scapegoat because a scapegoat is usually an individual, but something like a scapegoat writ large systemic racism it is, everything yes. is systemic racism yes everything and it's all is black and all all and i i'm a firm believer yeah. that there are black and whites but everything isn't black and white especially when you're dealing with human beings that are politicians that have a vested interest in getting you to buy like vivek ramaswamy had it on a, on a card i guess uh Nikki Haley is equals corrupt. And somebody on Twitter thought that this was so profound. He said, look, these are his only talking points. This is his only cue. And I said, yeah, or it's just a politician pandering. He knows that somebody's going to have a camera on that. He knows it's going to get seen. Like, why would you buy that so easily? But people yeah. do when they want to. I like, I like Vivek, all right. But here's the thing that bothers me about him. Um, one of the big things that bothers me about him, he gets the diagnosis right. He basically says, we have lost uh, we have lost our sense of who we are in this country, our national identity as Americans, right? That meant, used to mean something. And it's not naked jingoism or patriotism, you know, just like saluting the flag and all that stuff, because that stuff's empty. That has to be a symbol or of an of an of a set of ideals, right? Yes. For it for it to be um, effective and meaningful, but there's something in what he's saying. But he keeps he keeps telling people he's like we have to we have to do X Y Z to restore this sense of identity and pursuit of meaning. And I love that he's saying that. And I'm saying okay, so what is it? And he never tells us. It's like if you want to win the election, you're gonna tell have to tell people something. Maybe it's something like Ayn Rand used to tell people, and I'm not a Randian, but I but I am who I am today because of Ayn Rand. And I told you that on another episode, no doubt about it, because my testosterone addled adolescent mind, she told me that every person is a potential entrepreneur or heroic being capable of using his mind and his body in concert to make the world better, to create value for others. This is a profound thing to hear for a teenager who is always trying to figure out why they're the victim and why everybody's mistreating them because their teenagers are depressed and they want to blame everybody else. Hell, I have one. You know, he does it all the time and it's just it's the natural state of being a teenager. But when I picked up the fountainhead and read that I could be a heroic being with efficacy, with potency, that I was not a victim, that I was never a victim, because I would never allow myself to be as a matter of principle, that shit is powerful. And we need Very, more of yeah. We need more things that to tell prisoners, when you get out of here, we're going to help you figure out how to expand your sovereignty through service to others. 
by creating value in this world that people will be able to pay you for. And you can feel the dignity of creating that value and become your aspirational self, not a fucking victim. Excuse my mouth. Oh, you can um, swear. It's fine. That, I, I've heard swears before. That's the kind of thing that, you know, oh, I bet you have. <laughs> I bet you've seen them tattooed on people's necks. Too. I've even said them before. I mean, I know it's it's hard to believe. Uh, it's hard to believe, man. <laughs> but this, you know, but I mean, you get my point as a, as yes. a, as an objectivist. It, it's, sure. it's like objectivism at the end of the day, whether you, you know, whether anyone wants to agree with, you know, all of the particulars of, of the metaphysics, the epistemology and so on which we can quibble about all day as, as scribes and philosophers and all this kind of stuff, which I love to do. The fundamental aspect of it that is useful is a psychological disposition to creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation. Do you see the same thing that I see in, in using your taxonomy that, that you've got now that with the cluster Bs and the cognitive distortions between the woke left and the populist right. I don't want to Absolutely. put it all on Trump. I mean, with Trump, we have this sort of cult of personality, but it's it's deeper than that. You, you, so you do see it. Yeah, I do. And I'm wor I'm really worried that as I, I, I told you at the beginning that I'm seeing something of a tipping point, a push, a blowback against against radical social justice. Um, and, I, and I said, we could discuss what some of those things are. I said, you know, and I think, um, the first was people's experience of 2020 to see they, they witnessed the pathology of of the summer of of looting, right? That somehow the transmutation of criminal behavior into into moral behavior by virtue of the uh, massive victimhood and guilt complex was not good, not healthy for society. Number one. Number two, the um, the uh, vaccine regime the covid regime the lockdowns all that stuff where uh, you were meant to keep your head down be locked down acquiesce and it was all based on wrong think right it was all your your think was wrong their think was right which actually turned out to be almost all of it just completely bullshit um and then i think the most the most recent uh turn has been um the israel Palestine conflict, where they really just revealed some of the most like this idea that by any means necessary, we will decolonize um, makes you makes you tolerant of genocidal speech, makes you tolerant of, um, you know, just rabid anti-Semitism and otherizing people and look I'm, I'm i'm not saying that that doesn't go both ways we have to be very careful about this kind of stuff with respect to muslim populations and this and that but at the end of the day um i think this has caused people to do a massive rethink now a lot of that has manifested in a, a return to traditionalism and i don't think we want to and and some of it has uh, gone to have people embrace a different form of fascism. So that populism could turn into a kind of Mussolini-like fascism very quickly, where it's like, okay, now we're in power. Fuck these motherfuckers. We're going to get them. We're gonna we're gonna um, find ways to do what they did to us, which is 
you know, ensnare them in some way. Like uh, I believe that January 6th was, was uh, planned, you know, that there was elements of that, that was hastened or, or prodded on, or, you know, pushed on by the deep state and that there were a lot of uh, informants and actors like Ray Epps who were trying to get people to break in so they could make it an insurrection. They already had their talking points ready the next day. The insurrection language happened very quickly, almost too quickly. And that was a way that they could justify and make examples of people who were just like walking around on the property, throw them in prison for three or four years. Those, those weren't criminals. Those were protesters. Um, do you think, you know, it's a different, and, and, and go off field. Do you think there was none of that? Create though? a narrative to get Trump. But do you think there was no insurrection there at all? Or do you think that um, Trump did nothing wrong in, in the whole thing? I'm not, I'm not saying that. I think, okay. I think there was a, a lack of, a lack of wisdom in the way I, you know, um, I, I have a, it, yes. I mean, I think there, I think it's, it's a yes and phenomenon. I think it's true that this, that this stuff was being catalyzed by these deep state actors um, in the same manner as Gretchen Whitmer, right. Where they were trying to basically set these folks up to be patsies to take the fall for uh, symbolic fall, so they could um, begin to use sort of infiltrate this domestic terrorism idea to begin to infiltrate um, the the deplorables camp as they see it, and they're using fascist, really Machiavellian means to do so. But I also think people had ought to have enough sense than to go in there and. And go look that that redneck over there is busting in the window. I'm going to do it too because you know there's power in numbers. There's some of that that happened too. Um, sorry, I don't mean to. I don't mean to pick on Trumpkins too much, but there were a lot of idiot, idiots there that day and doing stupid things. And and they're going to make an example of you. And they did. And so now we have people spending four, five, ten, twenty years in prison for various levels of involvement on so-called insurrection, which is a, um, even though there were, you know, we have this concept of insurrection as being people who are armed, who are really trying to just come in and take over the government through, through violence, uh, just because they got rowdy and knocked down the doors, which is exactly what happened throughout all of 2020 for these sweet victims of, of, you know, police violence, uh, who were, you know, being represented by the, BLM riots. Um, it's it's this it's anyway. I'm I'm getting off track. Suffice it to say, yeah, I definitely think there was a. It happened in a vacillating tandem. There was an unwise bit of idiocy in there. We're going to show them, you know, kind of thing. It's like no, no just you got to be more strategic than that. And then being played to a very great degree, because on one side of the whole place they were being ushered in by police. You've seen all this footage. I have not. Um, I, 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 I oh, it's been released it. now. But I am very. All, the, all of the uh, stuff of all of the all the insurrection stuff is concentrated on really on one side of the building, and they were break broken glass and stuff like that. Turns out there was over uh, over a hundred people embedded who were FBI informants or FBI associated people, um, or other deep state apparatus people, federal basically feds who were egging it on because it's a form of entrapment, and so. The insurrection insurrectionist narrative would go all the way up to the to the head, which was Trump, and they could make it so that he could never ever come back to power. And look at what they're doing. Um, 
Now, it's not to say that Trump didn't do some unwise things, um, that some of the conversations about re rescuing the lesson, election were poorly phrased and may even have traversed into, you know, uh, election interference and all that stuff. I, I don't know. Um, I think there was it's straddling the line for sure. But that's really not the point of the original question, which is now we have a bunch of people who are pissed off and have seen Trump as such a victim that he's now a martyr. And he's not only leading in the polls, but if he is able to construct an apparatus of authority in there and weed out some of the uh, uh and, and there is a, there's a populace behind him and he permits that populace's bad behavior we could see a fascist backlash that could be in something that could amount to something like civil war it could amount to something like um a brutal suppression of um of other american citizens that is much like a tit for tat of what we're what we saw after january 6th and we uh just a general ratcheting up of every time someone takes back over power, they're using the apparatus of authority to suppress their enemies, their political enemies, and and or worse. And that I don't want to see. I don't want to live in that America. So sort of to put a ribbon on this whole thing. You mentioned earlier when in reference to Vivek that he doesn't really offer an answer. So you, we've got this sort of maladaptive thinking that, that's going on on all sides. That it, you know, it was referred to, I think, as like a taxonomy of woke something. I don't remember exactly. Mm. But we've got this all over the place, right? Well, I shouldn't say all over the place because then I'm doing the same thing. We've got a significant amount of this that's taking place in the, our culture and in, in our politics. What is the way out? How does this get remedied? And what role can I take? What role can you take? The people that are listening, what role can we all take to do something about this? Yeah. Um, man, if I had the answers, I'd, I'd either be rich or I'd, 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 I'd be a hero. Um, I'm neither. But I have some ideas. Oh, that's my boss calling. I'll call you back, sir. <laughs> um, the first, The first thing I'd say is that go, going back to uh, Arnold Kling's thing, you know, he has the sort of um, coercion as one dimension, and that's what libertarians tend to look at, you know. And then there's um, oppressor oppressed, uh, which is what the, the the social justice types, the progressives tend to look at. And then civilization and barbarity, which the the um, the conservatives tend, tend to look at, you know, this idea of orderliness or um not not letting too much change happen too fast or not letting things bleed out of control um so that civilization aspect i think we need i think we need to, an integrated dose counter dose of the libertarian story of liberation um and uh, you know a free of means of freeing people from authoritarian power um, but also freeing people from a victimhood mentality. So I think counter narratives, the use of mythos, uh, you know, to use the old Greek stuff, we need to, libertarians just tend to be trapped in logos all the time. Logos, 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 reason, reason, reason. I mean, even behind you, you know, rational egoist, right? 
it's like rationality yes but we need to we need to dabble in pathos we need to dabble in mythos and we need to dabble in ethos as well all of these things as um more complete beings in the way we communicate with others and the way we influence them so that the liberatory power of those kind of communications and those kind of actions where we can both model and practice being heroic beings in the manner of Ayn Rand, for example, or perhaps in other ways, um, in, in a more, you know, peaceful way, like the Dalai Lama, say. Um, what are the what do those stories look like? Who are the models for that? How can we celebrate them? How can we begin you know, we're starting to see some of it now with uh, Jordan Peterson and the ARC project. You know, they're asking they're asking the right questions. What kind of stories? What can we tell? What is what is the story of our civilization look like? How can we um, renew, have, enjoy a renaissance of of liberalism broadly construed, but build on that with compelling stories that have a quality of timelessness, but also what I call subversive innovation. Um, I really do think that all of this has to do with people's access to the power of the violent apparatus of the state. And I think you and I agree on this. And there are interesting ways to subvert that power uh, that are peaceful. I call subversive innovation. And three subversive innovation has a, a three threefold mandate, which sounds very bloodless and very economic-y, but Let's let's go for it. Let's let's go back to logos for a second. The first is to to for entrepreneurs, inspired entrepreneurs, to reduce the costs, uh, reduce transaction costs, right? With whatever system they develop, whatever technology they develop, whatever their entrepreneurial project is, their venture, it should reduce transaction costs. It should also make. It it should also increase predation costs max you froze and there's just a thumb you, you thumbs up on your screen i don't know what that's all about but that's what happened i have no i have no idea <laughs> i didn't do that can you still hear me i can hear you yeah okay so um maybe it'll unfreeze i hope it does but um the the idea of um, if I hope people don't just look at that funny frozen thing that's frozen for me too. Um, uh, but the, sec the second one, and this is important, is reduce predation costs. In other words, make it harder systemically through the venture to for someone to be a victim. Okay, so re reduce predation costs. In uh, re uh, sorry, increase predation costs. Reduce transaction costs increase predation costs from the outside, and finally reduce the cost of exit, exiting a system that is not working for you to create perhaps something new. You take those three things into your into your, your mind as a heroic being and set about changing the world, you might create the next Uber or the next Bitcoin uh, or the next foundational text or video or something that pulls people out of the morass of their psychological self-imposed prisons and plantations and liberates them to the possibility that they can be agentic beings with increasing sovereignty in the world in service to other people, creating value and 
yeah, making the world more prosperous, meaningful, and free. Well, that is a good idea. So, Max, where can people find you? I hope they'll come find me at underthrow.org. You can also find my book, Underthrow. It's my latest book on Amazon. But uh, if you just want to, it's just want to hang out and uh, see me think about stuff, um, see where my head is, underthrow.org is the place. And you can also contact me personally through those means. Beautiful. Thank you very much for being here. Always interesting. Always a good discussion. For now, this is the Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Till next time. And remember, leave your comments. Let me know what you think. It's very important. Thank you.